You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Her Money is proudly sponsored by Edelman Financial Engines. Every day we plan and save for our futures, but are you taking into account tax strategies when dealing with your investments? I know, it's not something we think about often enough, but you can find ways to save and invest more and better plan for your future. Visit planefe.com slash hermoney to schedule your complimentary wealth checkup today. Hey, it's Motley Fool Money co-host Dylan Lewis here. If you're listening to us, it's because you love following the stock market and learning about business stories. If you're looking to keep learning and unlocking your potential, then you should check out the Think Fast, Talk Smart podcast produced by our friends over at the Stanford Graduate School of Business. Think Fast, Talk Smart is the Webby award-winning best business podcast that's received nearly 43 million downloads and is the number one career podcast in 95 plus countries, so you know it's worth your time. Each week, host and Stanford lecturer Matt Abraham sits down with experts to discuss the best tips to hone and develop your communication skills, from making small talk that leaves a big impression, to keeping your nerves in check while speaking, to being more persuasive. Whether you're working on your elevator pitch or planning an important meeting, Strong communication skills are important in business and life in general. That's why you'll hear from pros like neuroscientist Andrew Huberman on how to manage speaking anxiety, as well as speechwriter, best-selling author, and friend of the fool Dan Pink on how to take risks in your communication, and psychologist Kelly McGonigal on how to harness nervous energy to fuel powerful presentations. All that and so much more available on the Think Fast Talk Smart podcast. So what are you waiting for? Listen every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube. Hey, everyone. Thanks so much for joining us today for How She Does It. On this show, we talk about all things women, money, and power. And no, I am not Karen Feinerman. I'm Jean Chatsky, and today we thought it would be fun to flip the script and ask my friend and the co-host of our Investing Club for Women Investing Fix, we thought it would be fun to ask Karen Feinerman how she does it. Between her role as CEO of Metropolitan Capital Advisors, a panelist on CNBC's Fast Money, a board member at the Wharton School, not to mention mom to two sets of twins. I mean, that in and of itself, don't worry, we will go there. We thought it was time to share her story. I thought I would start with a story, a quick story, actually, that comes from her book, Feinerman's Rules, and it illuminates why I am such a big Karen fan. When she was contemplating taking the job at CNBC, she recalled that she was really afraid of what people would say because, quote unquote, no serious hedge fund manager would ever be on TV. In fact, the more hidden they were, the better. What if she failed? What would people think? She ultimately accepted the offer a week later because, as she says, we can't wait for the fear of failure to subside. We have to move forward as if it isn't there. I think that is such an amazing way to approach not just work, but life. By always choosing new and unexpected opportunities, Karen has really blazed a path for women who have big dreams and who aren't afraid to chase them. And I am so happy to be able to call her my friend. Karen, thanks so much for asking me to do this. I'm so excited. 
Well, I always love hanging out with you. So it's fun to do this. I got to say a little bit embarrassed because the show is, all right, we're trying to find interesting women and hear how they do it. And oh, this week it's me. And I feel a little bit embarrassed about that. And if I could just add one thing to that story, I was also worried about my reputation as a hedge fund manager. And then I realized I'm a hedge fund manager. Really, what kind of reputation do I have anyway? (laughs) So that kind of allowed me to take the leap. For people who don't know, is there an easy way to describe what a hedge fund is? Oh, that is a good question. Okay, a hedge fund is really a catch-all phrase for a fund that is set up to do, it can do any kind of investment, but the investors are locked up, meaning they put their money in, they don't have access to it for a period of time. Often they get charged a management fee and the hedge fund manager takes a percentage of the earnings that hopefully they make. But it's really a very broad term. I focus on equities. I also just want to point out that doing this particular show wasn't your idea, that it wasn't like you woke up one morning and said, oh, I'm going to be the guest. Actually, Melissa Lee, your friend and your CNBC colleague, who was the very first guest that you had on How She Does It, said, Karen, this is silly. Our listeners don't know enough about you. You are a woman who does a lot all the time. And so that's why you're doing this. And I feel like we should start at the beginning. I know you were born in Maryland. Your father was in med school at Johns Hopkins, and you eventually ended up in L.A. You credit your mom for always pushing you to reach for more, but you've always also said she was a, and these are your words, seemingly powerless mom. What do you mean by that? Yes. So, you know, my parents had a very traditional marriage and my dad made the money and my mother stayed home with the kids. And they both sort of subscribed to this idea that whoever makes the money has the power. And so that's where I think of her as powerless. She was quite capable in a lot of things. And ultimately, later they ended up divorcing, actually, and she sort of started to do more things. She decided she wanted to sort of dabble in real estate, buying houses, fixing them up and selling them. And she became a teacher, which she loved. And so seeing this model, though, of more often the wife, for sure, being powerless was one that I never wanted to get into. I never wanted to have to ask someone for money. I know that about you. And it's not something that I think enough women are willing to cop to, that this desire to make money, and a lot of it is not something, and I have it too, by the way. I particularly have it since my divorce, but it's not something that you hear an awful lot of women admit. Why do you think that is, and how do you think that it shaped you? I don't know why that is. There's something that was unseemly. I think there was a bit of a generational thing where you never talked about money that is changing, maybe slowly. You might see that more than I, but I think, I don't know, it just seemed like always something really good to have. And I couldn't understand why more women didn't want to or didn't want to say that they wanted to, even if they did. There's something unseemly about it. And that's not the case for men. They're seen as ambitious and good for them. And the same word, the very same word, ambitious to a woman is potentially not flattering. 
has there ever been a point in your life where you feel like you got blowback because you were willing to admit these things? I mean, I know for you that money is not just being able to buy what you want. That's nice, right? We all like to have the ability to buy nice stuff, however we define nice stuff. But you've said it gives you integrity and freedom and confidence Has there ever been a scenario where you've felt that people were giving you the side eye because you were intentional about this? I think I felt it a little bit in college, although not a ton because I did go to Wharton, which is sort of vocational training for wanting to make money on Wall Street, sort of at the time. I know it makes women uncomfortable, and I still am troubled with why that is, actually, because I always think they must want to make money. They must want to have some power, right? And they just don't want to say it. Maybe they don't want to, but to me, that feeling of powerlessness is way worse than the whatever the unseemly side of ambition is. Yeah. Let's go back to your mom for a second, or actually let's go back to both of your parents. I think that whatever roles they decided that they were going to carve out for themselves, they did something right. I once interviewed Esther Wojcicki on the Her Money podcast, the mother of Susan Wojcicki and Anne Wojcicki. And she raised these incredible rock star achievers. Your parents did the same thing. I mean, if you look at you and your siblings, they are all fascinating and powerful in their own right. You had your sister Wendy on the show a few months back. What were they feeding you? (laughs) You know, my mother was really the one who was driving it, I think. My dad was a workaholic. He worked all the time. He's an orthopedic surgeon at UCLA. And they sort of both subscribed to the idea that he should spend all of his energy on work and advancing his career. And she would do all the other stuff, which included being the original tiger mom, right? You know, it was sort of that idea of if you come home with an A minus, what went wrong? And she really wanted all of us. There's four girls and a boy. We had another brother, but he died, which was a whole other very sad chapter. But terrible thing. Yes. Yeah. And changing for everyone, of course. But for the women, for the four girls, I still think of us as four girls, even though we're all women, that she said, you've got to make your own money. So get out there and figure out a way. And one of my friends describes my mother as sort of wasn't her message kind of don't come home till you've set the world on fire. And I think we just knew it was she was always striving for more, maybe some vicarious career through that. So I think she's kind of lived vicariously through my career, all of our careers, really. It's a lot of pressure, I think. I mean, I remember self-imposed pressure, I think mostly about grades, because on the occasion when I did come home with B's or even the occasional C, my mother would just sort of look at me and say, well, it's not my grade. I'm not going to feel bad about it. It's your grade. You want to feel bad about it? Do better the next time. People react very differently to that sort of pressure. What did it do to you? I think I really hated getting a bad grade. And I was a competitive tennis player and I hated losing. I absolutely hated it. It was sort of the equivalent of getting a bad grade. And in that realm, playing tennis, I had a terrible temper. 
terrible. And I think of that now as out of character, but at the time it was, that was very much my character in that sort of narrow field. Now I have a bad temper with my children sometimes, but that's a more universal thing that people have, I think. But for me, I really had a terrible temper. I just didn't know how to channel losing and sort of put it in perspective. How did you learn how to do it? Well, I eventually quit tennis. <laughs> and did I, I mean, that was, that was one way out and didn't come back to it again for years. And by then I had matured more and it didn't matter as much because it wasn't competitive tennis. And it, I think there's some maturity to just to growing up and realizing you can't behave that way, you know. There's maturity and then there is just an insane amount of confidence. I don't think I'll ever get over the fact that you applied to one college and it wasn't like it was an easy to get into school. I mean, you applied to Wharton. You did not have a plan B. Were you not terrified? Well, I think of it more as stupid, really, than terrified because that's a terrible plan, right? That is a terrible plan. I just knew. I knew where I wanted to go. I knew what I wanted to do. I thought I would be a good candidate. I just, I didn't think I would need a plan B. That sounds really dumb, I know, but that's where I was at the time. What would plan B have been? You know, these were the days where we still got envelopes, right? And we would go rushing to the mailbox to see if we got a thin envelope or a thick envelope. And if you got the thick envelope... You could breathe a little easier because you knew you knew that you were going to get into that particular school. If you had opened the mailbox and there was a thin envelope, what would you have done? I had no intention of applying anywhere else. I mean, I told my parents, apply to Wharton. That's it. If don't get in, I'm not going to college. Hopefully they wouldn't have let me follow through on that stupid plan had it come to pass. So I, I don't have a good explanation. And if one of my kids did that, I'd probably apply somewhere for them. And just not tell them until until they, until they the envelope. Yeah, not tell them. Let, let's talk about your career and launching your career. You went to Wharton, you got through Wharton, you succeeded in Wharton. And whether or not it was training school for Wall Street, which it was, being a woman on Wall Street in the 80s was not easy. Tell me about how you got your start and how you decided what your road was going to look like. My sister, Wendy, was very good friends with this guy she had met at Wharton, Jeffrey Schwartz, and he was a risk arbitrageur. And I had grown up, when I was the age of 15 or 16, reading about Ivan Boesky, but I pronounced it Boesky because I'd never heard anyone pronounce his name. And he was a risk arbitrageur. This was before he was arrested for insider trading. And I thought, wow, that seems like a really fascinating, interesting career. And you can make a lot of money. I want to do that. So not many kids, 16-year-old kids from California were like, yeah, I'm headed for risk art. But he gave, got me a summer job with another risk art. And I felt like I get this. I get it. It makes sense to me. It's fun. For those of us who don't get it, what is it? What is it? So risk arbitrage, as I use the term, is trading in stocks that are involved in takeover deals. And there's a lot of strategy to it. There's a lot of sort of machismo among the bidders that is interesting to watch. And it, it moves very quickly. And it's just, I found it fascinating and exciting. And so I had this summer job as a risk guard. And then when I graduated from Wharton, Jeffrey hired me to be a trader. And I was fascinated by it. And options were sort of a new, relatively new thing in the market at the time. And I 
you could really use them for a lot of different things in takeover deals. There was a lot of optionality, what we call a lot of different, very big swings in stocks could happen. And options were great tools to use. And I just loved it. But we were funded by this family, the Bellsbergs, the big Canadian family, and they kind of blew up in 1990. And so we had to shut down. And a couple years later, Jeffrey approached me and said, hey, we should start a hedge fund. And I really owe a lot of my sort of being somewhat insulated to being a woman on Wall Street to Jeffrey, who gave me so many opportunities and was always teaching me and just my champion. And I found sometimes, though, there was an advantage. So I always talk about the idea of, okay, if you go to an industrial, industrials is a group of different stocks that are like a United Rentals or something. If you go to a conference of industrial companies, there are not many women there. And so if you are a woman who's really interested to talk to a CEO, they don't have a lot of women who are dying to hear every word they say about their business. And so you have more access and that's helpful. But I was aware that people were hesitant to give women money to invest. I was aware of that. And I understood it in that I know there's sort of a deep-seated chauvinism. People are just used to having men manage money. And I, I think that's changing, but it's, it's slow. It's changing, yeah, very slowly. You know, it's interesting. I have felt the same way. I think that when I started working on television, there was an advantage to being a young woman in a sea of men with gray hair. And to some extent, that's still true. When I turn on the television to watch Fast Money, on CNBC at five o'clock to see what you are up to. And let's just be honest what you're wearing. <laughs> you know, it's you and Melissa Lee and a bunch of guys in most cases. You can't default to being a wallflower in that setting. How has that experience been for you? And have you had to force yourself to speak up even when that's been difficult? Yeah, I haven't. That's a great question. I haven't done a, as good a job as I could have in speaking up. And I would bet that if I were to look at on any given show how much time I spent talking versus each of the men, I'm pretty confident it would be less. And I'm just not comfortable sort of putting my foot down and saying, no, 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 let me finish, let me finish. But I'm getting better at it. And the other thing is the show is better when there's a little tension and a little pushback. And so I've been doing a better job of that, but it doesn't come naturally to me. And I understand it holds women back more broadly. And we just got to do it. We just got to jump in and interrupt, even though that's not our thing. And it was an interesting thing happened the other night. We were at dinner, my husband and I and another couple, and they had asked me a question and I was answering. And Lawrence is like, no, no, pause, pause, pause. And I'm like, wait, let me finish. Let me just finish. And he kept saying, no, pause, pause, pause. So I paused. And he said, see, only a woman would pause. A man would not have paused. And I thought I, I didn't realize he was doing this experiment. And it was really interesting. An experiment. But that's so mean. Maybe to, <laughs> to make a point, I understand it. But well, we were discussing that topic, actually, to give it a little more context. We were discussing the topic of women on Wall Street and things like that. And I was sort of fascinated by it. I guess that's why we're married, <laughs> that, that he would do that. He's never done something like that before that I recall, but it was like, 
oh, wow, that is really interesting. You know, your relationship with your husband is, I think, you joke about it. Clearly, you guys have, you've been together for a very long time. You've got four kids, which we're going to discuss because it's just, it's remarkable. You've told some funny stories on the air about Lawrence that you gave him an ultimatum to get married in 60 days or you were going to break up with him. and Engaged, right. Yeah, to get engaged. And he proposed on day 59. I might have killed him by then, by the way. Or that you give him the same Valentine's Day card every year where you make an appointment with a lawyer or a therapist or a financial advisor and you just ask him to sign here. Yeah. How would you describe your relationship with your husband? Well, when the kids were younger, it was sort of we were the co-CEOs of our household. There was just so much administrative, logistical things to do. We really respect each other. We have four kids that we love and love spending time with, and that's a really central part of our lives. I'm very interested in his business, and he. we've always shared that. And then, although we do have some very different circles of interest, I used to joke then say, you know, considering we don't fight about our in-laws or money or how to raise the kids, it's a wonder we're still together. <laughs> but here we are. There's a lot of respect there, and then there's a lot of independence as well. But I will say At every turn, he has been a huge supporter of my career at every turn and just will make it work. We'll make it work. We'll make it work with the kids. And it was interesting. I didn't ask him until our kids were, I don't know how old. I said, do you wish I had stayed home with the kids? Because we never talked about that. He said, yes, actually, I did wish for that, but I knew you would have been so unhappy. So I never brought it up. And he's right. I would have been unhappy. It was an easy decision for me. But uh, so he's been very supportive at every turn. That's so funny. My ex-husband and I never had the conversation either because he knew the, the exact same thing. I had the conversation with his father who said, when are you stopping work? And I said, yeah, that's not happening, but very, very interesting. I'm going to come back to the kids in just a second. But for right now, we're going to take a quick break. Her Money is proudly sponsored by Edelman Financial Engines. Have you taken into account tax strategies when dealing with your investments? I do it with my advisors a couple of times a year, and so I can tell you. The right tax planning can help you save, but the wrong ones? Well, they can cost you. Are you saving where you could be and taking advantage of strategies that can help you grow your money for the future? With a little advanced planning, you can find ways to save and invest more and make sure this year is one for the books. Visit planefe.com slash hermoney to schedule your complimentary wealth checkup. We are back. It's Jean Chatsky. I have hijacked Karen Feinerman's show, and I am speaking with Karen, the host of How She Does It, about how she does it. You got four kids and you've been very open about using IVF to have them. Tell us about the decision to have kids, the decision to venture into the world of IVF, and what it's like to have four. Yeah. So uh, similarly to how we got engaged, I sort of said to Lawrence, all right, well, now we're going to have kids. 
He was a little bit stunned and then sort of thought, well, okay, we were going to do that anyway. So, all right, we'll try. So we tried for a long time. Anyone who has tried to have kids the old-fashioned way in camp knows it is the worst sex ever. And then after a while, we just kind of gave up and said, all right, we're going to the fertility clinic. And okay, one crazy thing we <laughs> happened that I forgot about. So I was really, I was worked up. I wanted to move forward. I wanted to make progress. And I was nervous that we never would. And so he would keep all kinds of charts and ovulation and this and that. And one day I decided to overlay this chart that he made with the stock market. <laughs> And the correlation between the two, it's embarrassing. It's super embarrassing. And I'd forgotten about it for obvious reasons, because it's too embarrassing. And there was this high correlation. And I thought, oh, my God, I really am like too stressed. But anyway, so we had the first set of twins. Actually, we did uh, pergonol and artificial insemination. And then the second set, we just kind of cut to the chase and went to IVF. So I have two sets of twins, each a boy and a girl. And, you know, I think I feel what every mother feels that whatever path it had to be to get to your child, that child or those children were your destiny. And that's how I feel about my children. I think that many women with your career would have said, too great, done, enough. Did you want more because you came from such a big family? Did you always know you wanted a big family? Yeah, I did. I love I love a big family. Lawrence, it was just him and his brother, and he wanted a big family. So after the first set, we knew we were going to try again. And, and then actually, I did get pregnant again at the fertility clinic with one. And then I had a miscarriage. And then we did it again. And I just knew it was going to be twins. I just knew and they implanted two. And so the likelihood of twins was high. So it just, I don't know, I feel like I ended up where we were supposed to end up. And so then we had a, you know, chaotic 12 years of that was I, I think it was 12 years of being exhausted before it finally broke. And, you know, when we could relax a little bit. You had a woman named Jackie Reese's on the show, and she said she would never say no to something career wise because she had kids. I used to get so frustrated and I only have two. But I, when somebody would ask me that balance question, how do you balance? How do you because balance, as we know, is bullshit, right? So I'm not going to ask that question, but I am going to ask, how did you cope? Like during those 12 years, how did you how did you cope and work and make progress in your career because you did all of those things? And how did you feel simultaneously about the amount of time and energy you had for being at home? So I think I had a lot of things going in my favor. One, you know, we had the resources to have a lot of help all the time. Seven days a week, we had help. And so I always tell people, give up everything to get more help. And that, so that was central. And also Lawrence was pretty hands-on. He did a lot of the stuff, like the applications for preschool and all that kind of stuff he did. And I think that I have this idea of what I call the number one parent, which is the one that sort of knows the kids best. And I think at some point, women who want to have kids, want to have a career, have to give up that number one parent role occasionally. So it could be for a month or two, or it could be longer. But if they have a partner who, allow, who will step in and be that number one parent, that's central. And so when I really needed it, uh, Lawrence was there. And the other thing 
this is not going to sound, it's going to sound antiquated, but I am really not in favor of working from home when you have little kids, especially. Because I think when the kids are home and they know you're home, they feel like you're ignoring them. And when you leave, they get used to it and they don't sort of question where you are. And I think that allows you to be focused at work and focused at home instead of trying to do both at the same time all the time, which I think is really hard. And then the good thing about being in a job that's correlated to the stock market is the market closes. That's important. There is nothing you need to do after it's closed. Now you have work to do and you want to be up on whatever news there is, but you're not going to make a trade. So that was really important. Now I try to really kind of just keep this sort of six to nine block of time each night with the kids and only focus on them. And and then one other thing I did that was helpful to me and to the kids, I would have dinner. Two nights a week, I would have dinner with a child alone. And I did that for years. And I think that it allowed some very good one-on-one -on -one time. And to be honest, having dinner with one child alone is often much more pleasant than having dinner with four children. And... <laughs> So it was sort of a win. And they were okay with my going off to have dinner with a child alone because they knew that it would be their turn too, either that week or the next week. And that was something I think that was really important. They also knew I was not going to every game. I'd say, what are the ones that are really important? And I think just setting their expectations, Jack, we come back to Jackie Reese's who talked about that as well. You come to what you can. And I didn't, feel that much guilt, to be honest. That probably sounds bad, but I didn't. I felt like they knew what I was going to be there for and that what I wasn't. And Lawrence was there for some things. And then we really tried to have vacation time, very focused vacation time. I love the dinner with one child making one of your kids feel really special. I had a therapist at one point when I was really struggling with the guilt and she said, you travel all the time. Just take your kids one at a time on your business trips. And it was remarkably helpful. You know, I was like, oh, how can I pull them out of school? And she's like, oh, please pull them out of school. They will be fine. And that time one-on-one -on -one with the parent is really interesting. One of the things that I have enjoyed so much over the past couple of years is learning how to invest through your eyes. I think that many women, and I, I would include myself, we are 401k investors. We have retirement funds. We put our money in. We rebalance once or twice a year, if that, but we know we're automatically contributing. And if we do it for many years, it'll get us to retirement. Thanks to you, I've been part of this group of hundreds of women now learning to invest through our investing club for women called Investing Fix. And you're teaching us how to pick companies, how to look at companies, how to analyze individual stocks in a really plain English sort of way. How has the experience been for you? I love that women are interested, right? I love that because I feel like that is the road to empowerment. And I love the idea of sort of demystifying just the language, the acronyms. You know, there's a lot to to learn that once you understand, oh, this is what that means. Okay, now I get it. 
And they're just so hungry to learn, and I love that. And I love sort of breaking it down. How really, what are the things that are important, you know? And if we can do it in a way that is easy to understand while also giving them some concepts that are broader than just whatever stock we'll look at. Just even things like how a stock reacts to earnings. Just learning that it's not really necessarily what the earnings are, it's versus what are expectations. And that's a, you know, a way to think about the market that they may never have thought about. So I love sort of opening their eyes. And then some of them, we have some of them present if they want to, and I work with them. And that's it's fun to sort of hear their excitement and you know why they really believe in a company and then w- what their sort of concerns might be, you know, and I... I'm impressed with how much they want to learn, and I love that. And there is a vibe when you have a bunch of women together that is so supportive and hopefully feels like a comfortable place to ask any question. And I don't know. And it's been fun to to do with you. I can't believe we overlapped at school so long and didn't even know each other. I know. I know. Walking past each other on Locust Walk, probably. Didn't even know you. You've been a professional investor for a long time now. What do you think your secret sauce is? I mean, for all of those women who want to be good stewards of their own money, what do you say to them about what you have to do to get it right? Mm -hmm. I think despite being on a show called Fast Money, I think you got to be in it for the long term. On that show, I'm sort of the one that I don't trade around a lot. I'm really in it for the long term. And so I try to always be invested, right? I know you often say it's not the the timing of the market. It's the time in the market that is important. And it's also about the lesson of never being over levered, right? Never. I will never get a margin call, which you get if you don't have enough cash in your account to cover the stocks that you own. I will never get. So that's a really important lesson as well. But just, I think going for quality companies is sort of a simple lesson. I feel like Charlie Munger distilled it down or maybe Kung Fu Panda. The, the secret sauce is there is no secret sauce. It's just that you got to be in it and you got to be in it in a, a not a wild risk-taking way. And over time that will work out. And it's that simple. Over time, it works out. Clearly, you are incredibly disciplined when it comes to this part of your life. But I also know that you're incredibly disciplined when it comes to other parts of your life. You told me that your New Year's resolution every year is the same, that you are going to exercise less and drink more. Do you think you need to be having more fun? Yes. And I never do it. That's why that is why it's my resolution every year. I know I do need to be having more fun. What's fun to me, though, is probably different than what's fun to most people. I don't love exercising five days a week. I love having exercised five days a week. So it's really that what is it worth to you kind of, you know, it's I guess it's a longer, a longer term view. But I do, as the kids have gotten much older now, I have a lot more time to do the things that I love to do. So I, I just happen to drink less. I'm not a huge drinker. <laughs> that, I, don't, I don't have an explanation for that. From what I'm reading, it's not particularly good for us anyway. Karen, this has been a really fun conversation. Thank you for sharing. Before we move on to our lightning round, we're going to take a quick break. 
Let's address a crucial topic and one of our hot button issues here at Her Money, women outliving their retirement savings. It's a huge problem, but it's one ParityFlex, the multi-year guaranteed annuity available from GameBridge, is designed to fix. If you're not familiar with annuities, the concept is essentially that you take a chunk of money and turn it into a paycheck that you can start drawing on when you want to, next year or next decade. With guaranteed returns at 5.95% APY, the ParityFlex multi-year guaranteed annuity also features a guaranteed lifetime withdrawal benefit, which ensures a consistent income even if your account balance is zero. And if there's one thing better than a successful retirement, it's a stress-free retirement. Start saving now at Gainbridge.io. Please visit Gainbridge.io slash ParityFlex for important information. This is a paid endorsement. Hey, everybody, it's Jean. If you want to continue unlocking your potential, then you should also check out Think Fast, Talk Smart, produced by our friends at Stanford Graduate School of Business. Think Fast, Talk Smart is the Webby Award-winning Best Business Podcast that received nearly 50 million downloads. It's the number one career podcast in 95 countries, so you know it's worth your time. Each week, host and Stanford lecturer Matt Abraham sits down with experts to discuss the best tips to hone and develop your communication skills from making small talk that leaves a big impression to keeping your nerves in check while speaking to being more persuasive. Whether you're working on your elevator pitch or planning an important meeting, strong communication skills are critical to business. All that and so much more is available on Think Fast, Talk Smart. Listen every Tuesday wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube. And we're back with our lightning round. I'm so excited that I get to ask the questions. Okay. I know how to play. Now, you may know this best as would you rather. The only challenge is you can't think about this. You have to say whatever comes to your mind at the moment. Ready? Yeah, right. L.A. or New York? New York. Hockney or Picasso? Ooh, Hockney. Running or weightlifting? I liked running, but I can't really do it anymore, so weightlifting. Underdressed or overdressed? Uh, this has changed over time. Overdressed. Courtside at a game or backstage at a concert? Courtside at a Liberty game is pretty good. <laughs> Laugh uncontrollably or be moved? Laugh uncontrollably. Again and again. Drive or be driven? Be driven. Really? Yes. Oh, my God. I can use the time to do something. Control. It's all about control. <laughs> fiction or nonfiction? Oh, I. this has changed also. Fiction. What are you reading? Well, I finished now when that's going to sound stupid. I just finished Elon Musk. I had just started Catch-22. What is something you changed your mind about in the last year? Elon Musk, actually, from thinking, wow, what a ridiculous kind of guy. He's the richest man in the world. Some of his actions are just irresponsible to what a ridiculous guy. However, he did seem to have a really difficult childhood. He probably is on the spectrum. Maybe that helps him. But the whole package of Elon, including all the ridiculous stuff, net-net is a positive to society. So I have changed my mind about Elon. 
I got to read that book, clearly. Who's one person alive or dead that you'd love to have dinner with? Oh, of course, my mom. Last one. What is the best investment you've ever made and the worst investment you've ever made? Okay. This is going to be a little embarrassing. Just as a rate of return, the best investment I've ever made is either marrying my husband or Bitcoin. I'm embarrassed to say because it's so not my kind of thing. And it went berserk. The worst investment was early in my career. I put on this complicated trade thinking it was so smart and I would either make five times my money or lose the original investment. But what I didn't realize was there was also a scenario where not only would I lose the original investment, I would need to pay a ton of money to get out of the investment. Of course, that's what happened. I will never do a trade like that again, where I have not kept my downside to a certain number. Really a horrible mistake. Glad it was early in my career. I've never made that same mistake twice. I've made many other ones, but not that same mistake. I am once again so glad we got to do this. Do you have any guests coming up on this show that you're really excited about? I have a few. I really liked the Jackie Reese's episode, the Silicon Valley entrepreneur. I think she's fascinating. Pinky Coles is coming up. She, I don't know if any of you are vegans, but Slutty Vegan, which is a great brand. And then also I'm excited to have Gina Drosos, who is the CEO of Signet Jewelers, which she has transformed. But also I hear she has a lot of data about getting engaged. And I find that fascinating. I love a good engagement story. So do we all. Karen, thank you for doing this. Thank you for doing this, Jean. I appreciate it. My pleasure. And thank you all for joining us today on How She Does It. Thanks to Karen for sharing why she'd never let the fear of failure hold her back. When you've got a sec, please follow us on Apple Podcasts. Subscribe to updates from the Her Money community at hermoney.com slash subscribe. Our producers are Catherine Tuggle and Haley Pascalitas. This podcast is mixed and mastered out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is from Video Helper and our show comes to you through Megaphone. Have a great week. Look forward to seeing you 